everyone, and welcome to the She Research Podcast. I'm your host today, Kate McKay, and today I'm joined by Lisa Dive. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Kate. How are you doing? Yeah, well, thank you. Excellent. Um, And Lisa has joined me today to discuss her paper called From a Right to a Preference, Rethinking the Right to Genomic Ignorance, which is forthcoming in the Journal of Medicine and Philosophy. Thank you for letting us uh, hear about this paper, Lisa. It was really interesting to read. Um, Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And I wonder if, for our listeners, you could give a kind of uh, quick summary of the paper and the argument that you provide in it. Okay, sure. Um, So maybe just first to explain what the right not to know is, Mm -hmm. um, for those who are not familiar with the world of genetics and genomics. So in the field of genetics and now genomics, there is this concept of the right not to know, which is the idea that any person is entitled to refuse to receive information about their genetic makeup. And that might also be things like refusing to do a genetic test. So the overarching message from my paper is that I think that using the language of rights in this context is really unhelpful and it's better to talk about preferences. Mm -hmm. And to make that point, I have sort of three main claims. So one of those is that there's a lot of confusion and sort of crossed wires in the debate about the right not to know. Another point that I make is that there are different conceptualizations of autonomy used in the debate about the right not to know, um, used in different ways. So autonomy is used to argue both for and against a right not to know. Mm-hmm. And this use of autonomy and different versions of autonomy has contributed to that confusion. Mm -hmm. And something else which has sort of muddied the water, I think, of the debate is that the right not to know is often treated as an extension or somehow kind of normatively equivalent to the right to know one's genetic or genomic information. And I think that that's a mistake. Right. So what is the right to know? Well, the right to know is the idea that we, any person has the right to seek out information about their genetic makeup. Okay. And yeah, so a lot of the literature assumes that if you have a right to access certain information about yourself, then you have an equivalent right or a kind of a mirrored right to refuse that information. But in my paper, I actually argue that they're different kinds of rights. Interesting. Um, Maybe we'll come back to what kind of rights they are in a second. Yeah, sure. Um, Cool. Um, I was going to ask first um, what your motivations were for writing this paper. What kind of, how did you become inspired or how did you become interested in the topic? Well, I have been working for a while on the concept of autonomy. I got interested in this concept quite a few years ago and I've been exploring the role of autonomy in decision-making generally in medical decision making but particularly in the context of genomics Mm -hmm. and so I came across this debate about the right not to know and I thought that was it's almost like an interesting case study of the way that autonomy is used in medical decision making Mm. and there is a lot of debate around it and it's quite a lively and interesting debate so I started getting into the literature and what I found was that people were often arguing against each other but arguing about different things altogether. Oh, really? So, 
Yeah, it was really surprising and I thought maybe I'm just not getting it. But they're actually, the right not to know is actually conceptualised in very different ways by different authors. So, I mean, just as an example, some people might argue that we don't have a right not to know because we have an obligation to get our genetic information for the sake of our relatives. So we, and we have an obligation to seek that genetic information. Mm-hmm. Um but then another way of understanding the right not to know might be around healthcare providers and their obligations to respect people's wishes not to have a genetic test or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of different ways that this right is invoked and um, argued about in the literature. And, and so I got quite interested in unravelling that and particularly focusing on the role that autonomy played in those debates, the concept of autonomy. Yeah, that's really interesting because it sounds like some of those authors will just be talking past each other. Yeah, exactly. It felt a lot like that. Mm. And sometimes they do engage directly with each other, but sometimes they don't as well. So what are some of the main points of interest in the paper? And maybe here you can say a little bit about how you conceptualize um, rights versus preferences. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, one of the main points, I think, um, you know, coming from an analytic philosophy background and training, I think it's really important to be clear about what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we're clear from the outset, then that can help enormously when we're having a debate about any kind of an issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, so this is what I was trying to do in relation to the right not to know. And so I started getting into the literature about rights and that has its origins sort of in legal scholarship. And what I found was that rights are often conceptualised as having, um, as being sort of paired with an obligation. So a right only exists if there is a another party, a third party, another person or an entity that is obliged to fulfil that right. Mm. And that if you don't have that corresponding obligation to fulfil the right, then a right doesn't really make any sense. And so also what I found, um, so there was a scholar called, Wesley Hofeld, an early legal scholar in the early 20th century, who distinguished between all sorts of different rights, and he had quite a complex taxonomy, but I focused in on one particular distinction that he made between what he called claim rights and liberty rights. Mm -hmm. So liberty rights are just freedoms, so they are just a freedom to do something. So a person has a freedom to do something, and that means that nobody is entitled to stop them from doing that, but it doesn't generate a particular obligation to any one party. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. But then, by contrast, a claim right is a claim that a person has, a right to to something, which generates an obligation on a particular party, like an an organisation or a state or a person, to fulfil that right. Mm-hmm. So it's that latter kind, a claim right, that I think the right not to know makes most sense as. So the right not to know is a claim right, which means that yes. there's someone who must not tell you. Am exactly. I understanding that? Yeah, Yeah, that's right. So okay. um, the right not to know is explicitly sort of safeguarded or enshrined in various policy instruments like from the World Medical Association and in the UN Declaration on the Genome. I don't think Mm. that's the exact right name, Mm. but um, a a UN Declaration in regards to um, 
genomic medicine and information, mm -hmm. they say that people are entitled to refuse to receive genomic information if mm -hmm. that's what they want, mm -hmm. unless it's sort of that there is some caveat, but it's quite a high bar. It has to be life-threatening circumstances. Mm -hmm. So because those rights are enshrined, they generate obligations on some other party. And usually it's considered these are, so like the World Medical Association is giving guidance to healthcare providers, mm -hmm. doctors usually. And so that's the idea that as a doctor, you shouldn't be allowed to force someone's genomic information on them mm -hmm. if they don't want to receive it. And so your argument was that this should be better understood as a preference. Yeah, exactly. Because I think when we have a decision to be made about whether or not to order a genetic test or whether or not to tell somebody about some information which has been revealed mm -hmm. in a genetic test or in a genomic test, then there are always going to be lots of different factors which are relevant that we need to um take into account when making that decision. Mm -hmm. So one of those might be the preference of the pe person, the patient, not to receive that information. But there are also going to be other factors like what the nature of that information is, what it means for them, what it means for their family members and so on. Mm -hmm. And I think it's actually like in practical terms, it's almost always a preference that can be accommodated. But I think that it's a mistake to assume it is a preference that should always override everything else. It's usually not stated explicitly, but it's often implied that a right is a thing which will override all other moral considerations in any situation in which it's invoked. So mm. that was quite an interesting thing, I thought, and not very well justified. Mm. Yeah, interesting. It's like the right as a trump card idea. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, mm. that's it. So were there any um, challenges that you faced in writing the paper or were there specific objections or sort of long-standing beliefs in the literature that you needed to address or overcome when you were writing the paper? Um, I think the main challenges were really sorting through the confusion and trying to understand the sort of all the different variations of what the right not to know might mean. Mm-hmm. And then trying to pin it down and clarify it in a way that made the most sense. Mm -hmm. So what's the primary takeaway message that you hope people will glean from your article? Well, I think it is this idea that rights language is really unhelpful in this kind of context. Right. And so if we're talking about this so-called right not to know, we should really treat it as a preference. And people will always have all sorts of preferences mm -hmm. and I think that the healthcare system and the people who work in it should always respect those preferences and do their best to meet them as long as they're also doing the best that they can for that particular patient. So they all, there's always going to be a weighing and balancing of all sorts of different factors mm -hmm. and that if someone has a preference not to know certain information about themselves, then that preference should be thrown into the mix and balanced against everything else. Mm -hmm. And can I ask you one sort of follow-up question? Because it it sounds to me when you're describing it that one of the main points of conflict here might be between a person and their family members. Would that yeah. be right? So it's, it's like happy. you have the preference not to know something, but because your genetic information is really important for people who are related to you, there might be a reason. Well, I don't know. Would there be a reason to tell you or would there be a reason to tell other people? Well, there might be. And, I mean, 
genetic this is the kind of space that genetic counselors work in because mm. it's very complex with family relationships mm-hmm. but sometimes an individual's genetic information might have implications say for the reproductive decisions that their children might be making at right. that time mm-hmm. um, or their siblings or um, or even for treatment for medical conditions that other people in their family have mm-hmm. and so it's sometimes yeah, so sometimes it will be relevant for other people, but you can't really force people to, I mean, you can't force people at all to um, take a genetic test for the sake of their family members or even to divulge the results of a test mm-hmm. if it's um, to their family members. But this is the sort of thing that requires very careful and considered negotiation through genetic counsellors who can work with the family dynamics and all that kind of thing. Right. Right. So interesting. Um, in genetics broadly, there is this quite accepted, um, or the right not to know is quite well entrenched and well accepted in genetics and in genetic counseling and so on. And I, I mean, part of when I got interested in this, I thought surely there might be some situation in which you'd be justified in overriding the right not to know. So mm-hmm. when that preference should not be that preference not to receive information should not be respected by the healthcare practitioner because it conflicts with some other goal that the patient has. Mm-hmm. So I I had toyed with structuring this paper around a particular clinical example, but in the end it got it was too difficult because I would have to get too much into the clinical specifics of that particular case and then it would be hard to generalize. Right. Yeah. But I had the idea of something like um if a finding of a condition like hemochromatosis had been discovered in a person's mm-hmm. genome somehow, um, that is a blood condition in which people um, produce too much iron. Mm-hmm. And if you know that you have it, it's really easy to treat it. You just need to uh, give blood every now and then, you monitor your iron levels and then give blood every now and then. But if you don't know that you have it, it can be really damaging to your vital organs because iron builds up in them Mm. so if a person has like any reasonable person a desire to live a long and healthy life to the best of their abilities um, but they also have a strong preference not to receive any genetic information about themselves but then a clinician is in possession of this information which will enable them to do fairly minor things to prevent um sort of serious impacts from a condition that they Mm. have or Mm. that they will develop in the future, then that seems to me a situation when it might be reasonable to override that person's preference not to receive that information. Mm -hmm. Now, I should also say that this is based on my very, um, I'm, I'm not a clinician, and so I know that the American College of Medical Geneticists has taken hemochromatosis off their list of mandatory reportable conditions um, oh, or genetic variations. So there are some, like there's, it's not very clear cut that particular genes mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. correlated with the phenotype, but that's the sort of an example of um, the kind of situation in which I think it might be when we have better understanding of genes and the way that they translate into genetic conditions, mm-hmm. um, we might be justified in giving people information even if mm-hmm. They think they don't want it, but it's actually going to help them live the kind of life that they want to live. Right. If it's conflicting with others of their values or something like that. Exactly. 
Well, thank you so much for speaking with me about your paper, Lisa. It sounds really interesting. And Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, my pleasure. Interested listeners can access the paper in the link below this podcast episode. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. You can find She Research Podcasts on Anchor and whenever else you find uh, good podcasts of quality. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye.